Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Jessica Barksdale in Klan about her latest novel, The Play's the Thing. On this podcast, we mostly talk about historical fiction in the traditional sense, settings and events that take place 50 or more years before the author's present. But I love a good time travel story as much as any other history buff. Indeed, if there is an intrinsic appeal to fish-out-of-water tales with their outsider perspectives on a novel's world, it's hard to imagine a fish more out of water than a contemporary person unexpectedly dumped into the often dirty, dangerous, misogynistic, racist, and homophobic society that our ancestors took for granted. This is the predicament that confronts English professor Jessica Randall in Barksdale and Klan's novel. But at the moment when her adventure begins, Jessica, yes, author and heroine have the same first name, and you'll find out why in the interview, is facing another kind of horror. Chapter 1, A Very Bad Performance Despite myself, I couldn't stop staring. Next to me, his dark hair gleaming in the golden stage lights, Stan Gordon leaned back in his theater seat, notepad resting on one long thigh. He and I weren't on a first date, but the brilliant conversations I'd hoped to have with him shriveled in my parched throat. I coughed, crossed my legs, and pulled at my probably too short skirt. Thank God I was wearing tights. Sad, weird nerves zinged through my chest. Instead of helping the drama department with their upcoming play, I hoped to talk with my handsome colleague. Where did you grow up? I wanted to ask. What are your hobbies? What do you do when you aren't grading English papers? My cheeks burned from the embarrassment I hadn't even earned yet. Maybe Dan was feeling as awkward as I was because he coughed lightly a couple of times, finally saying, Why stage the Merchant of Venice? What do you mean? I grabbed onto the question and turned in my seat to face him. Isn't Sherry asking for trouble, anti-Semitism and all that? This is nothing. Once she tried a clothing-optional Midsummer Night's Dream. Dan burst out with a low laugh, the sound a warm rumble. Jessica, for audience or cast? Cast, I said. As you might imagine, the dean squelched the idea. And now, please join me in welcoming Jessica Barksdale in Klan. Hi, Jessica. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. You've published many novels, too many for us to review one by one on this podcast, uh, as well as two collections of poetry. How can you characterize your body of work for us? Any favorites or books you'd especially like to bring to listeners' attention? Uh, Well, uh, thank you for noticing that they're a little bit different. I, uh, bottom line, I really sometimes come up with a project before uh, I realize what genre it is. So I have an idea, and then it it becomes the genre that it is. So I don't tend to write in one particular genre like I don't always write contemporary fiction or or romance or poetry like the topic sort of dictate how it is going to 
appear. So it's a, a marketing nightmare, really, when you think about it. You know, agents pulled out their hair over the years trying to figure out what to do with me. And uh, so in terms of um, how I, I – so I can't really categorize it. it I used – when I wrote contemporary f- fiction, it, I could say things like, well, it's people and the stuff they do. <laughs> <laughs> because it was, you know, just people doing the stuff that they do, but with hopefully some dramatic arts. Uh, when I got into some of the romances, there was some magical paranormal, and there's a little bit of that with time travel, or you could say that's very scientific, if you believe in the many world series of, of, uh, of, of realities or time or quantum physics. You know, you could say time travel science. Uh, so I, I guess it's just how I would characterize my novels or my work is what's interesting and up for me, yeah, and, which seems very self-indulgent. Um, but I, I did start as a poet. I was first published in, in poetry journals and in college. That's where my, my most of my energy resided. And so I'm, I'm very excited also about the poetry collection that came out this year titled Grim Honey. Uh, it, it was partially written during the pandemic, which uh, a lot of us are still right in the thick of or grappling with. And um, I think it resonates a, in, in, in for a lot of people along those lines. You were an English professor, but as you note, not a Shakespearean scholar per se. Uh, what motivated you to write this novel? One very interesting conversation occurred. Uh, I think it was Christmas 2014. So this is a long time ago now. My, at the end of the eve, you know, by the end of Christmas Eve night, people are just kind of in disarray. And uh, we were all sitting in the living room and my older son's then girlfriend said something like, what, where does your name come from? And I said, well, there are a number of thoughts, but one of them is that Shakespeare invented it for a character in The Merchant of Venice. And she, she, she may have had a couple of glasses of wine in, under her belt. And she said, wouldn't that be bizarre if Shakespeare was haunted by all the Jessicas and all the world because of what he did? And then, you know, that was kind of the end of that conversation. But I just kept thinking about it. I thought, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be weird? You know, who knows? This? Because as a writer, I have actually written things that have happened which is kind of creepy. And my, my younger son says, mom, please be very careful about what you, what you write, because sometimes you seem to conjure, conjure up stuff. And I'm like, okay. But I thought, what if, you know, you create a name, um, are you responsible in some ways for that creation? So I just sort of molded over the new year came and went. And I decided to just write a scene where, Poor Shakespeare <laughs> is in his chambers, and then and we learned that all the Jessicas have been haunting him, and he has no idea why, and he's exhausted, and he's frantic, and he can't. You know, his life is in ruins, really, because of this experience. And then the Jessica for the story shows up, and suddenly 
they stop. And so I was able then to sort of proceed with the story. And in terms of the Shakespeare, you know, I love Shakespeare. I find, of course, his time troubling in a lot of ways, very difficult to grapple with, you know, the, the beginnings of slavery in, you know, the, the, the United, well, it wasn't the United Kingdom then, but, you know, the, the monarchy and the, the colonialism that was about to ensue and just the treatment of women and all sorts of things were going on. But I've, I've loved that time. I love reading about um, the history, Queen Elizabeth, I love all his plays. And so it just was sort of a way for me to, there's a lot of little Shakespeare in-jokes and little comments that I've been able to put in the book that Shakespeare people will, will get, but should hopefully just work for everyone. So it was, a, it was not only could I take my son's girlfriend's comment, but then just apply all the fun Shakespeare stuff to the story. That is such a wonderful story. I had, I had no idea that that was going, what was behind it. So I can't ask the next question because obviously it is not a coincidence that everyone no, it's your first name. No, it's so not a coincidence. Yeah, it, it's just, you know, where do your, people often ask, you know, for instance, I have a niece named Caroline, Carolyn. And it, there's this, always these questions. It turns out my mother's name is Carol and um, then they created a name based off of that. For, you know, so every, everybody's name has some kind of history, has some kind of, uh, you know, connection from the past. And are these connections, you know, what are these connections? So it's really weird on Facebook, if you've ever done something weird like this, which I do, I put in my name. I put in my Jessica Barksdale, um, not with Dean Kwan, but I put that in there. And there are other people with my whole name. Are we related in some weird metaphysical, uh, you know, way? I don't, I don't know. I probably not, but it, it is something that piques my imagination. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as for the, the other comment about the, the troubling aspects, I mean, this is one of the things about the past is that there's so much yeah. that we can no longer even bear to imagine was once the case, never mind, actually um, support it. But, you know, that's the great thing about historical fiction. You can write it all out. You don't have to live it. Right, right. You have the space to, to grapple. We can... You know, you can't ignore it. What I what I don't like sometimes about some historical fiction is not even nodding to the problems. You know, just sort of, I, I think there's a romantic, I, I, I was looking through, you know, just the, the, the list of things of, in his, his, historical fiction. You know, people are very much into the times of other writers. Uh, like if even if Jane Austen, we think, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be so great to go back? Really, would it? Would it really be so great to go back? Uh, can you imagine the bathroom facilities? Can you imagine the the situation for women? I, you know, everyone always gives Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice so much grief. You know, for her just relentless push for her daughters to get married. But when you look at it in a realistic light, she was 100% on point. 
you know. She, her girls had to get married um, because they were going to have no inheritance and they were going to be in some severe trouble. So when you, when you reimagine, when you really look at the past and look at how we live now, um, you have, you can't just go into the past thinking, oh, it's, it's all a glow. It's golden lit. Everybody's happy. No, everyone is not happy. There's probably a war next door. <laughs> right. And we're going to get to some more of that later. But that's one of the things okay. I really loved is Jessica's uh, reaction to all of this is absolutely <laughs> spot on. <laughs> so as we hear in the introduction, um, Jessica starts out at a rehearsal for The Merchant of Venice. Um, the rehearsal has elements uh, that reminded me of my favorite this American Life episode, which is called Fiasco, about a performance of Peter Pan that starts bad and gets worse. Um, what is Jessica doing there? She did so uh, many of my uh, friends, because I've you know, been teaching, or have been in the university college extension level teaching my entire career, but many of my friends have, have gone straight into university teaching, and it is it's really hard to to push forward and get tenure and and Jessica hasn't she made a couple of bad choices in her undergraduate and graduate degrees in terms of relationships and then found herself teaching in the middle of nowhere to her mind and she's trying to help out um, you know, department, you know, her department chair asked her to help out the drama department with the staging of the Merchant of Venice. So she's uh, fine. But there's, you know, there is one good perk because she likes the colleague working with her helping. But the other thing she's there for is the Merchant of Venice is an incredibly troubling and problematic play, no matter where it's put on these days. There's always usually articles in the local newspaper talking about why put on Merchant of Venice or, you know, what are the troubling parts of Merchant of Venice, the Merchant of Venice, and because of the anti-Semitism. Uh, so she's there, there trying to help the actors and the, uh, and the director with the context of the story. And tell us a little bit about Dan Gordon. I mean, he doesn't really mean much to Jessica at the very beginning of the story, but he is a character, and he's sort of there as, I suppose you could say, the counterpart to Will Shakespeare <laughs> throughout the story. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, you know, there's some part of the, in the, she thinks of him as just like the quintessentially sort of perfect uh, young male professor. And he's a nice guy, which is, Kind of nice, you know. He he seems a little distracted, but he he's there. He he's also an associate professor. He also is trying to work his way up the academic chain. He's he's kind and interesting, and something and a and a person the type of person she hasn't had a lot of interactions with in of recent time, you know, so he's, she's a little starstruck by how nice he is and interested in him, but she's, she's too distracted and too fragmented at the beginning of this novel to really be able to do anything uh, with Dan Gordon, <laughs> but he's there. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right, he's there. So she's sitting here listening to these students massacre this play, basically. Um, And she, you know, does what many people would do under those circumstances and decides it's time to to take a, a bathroom break. So she goes off and walks into a very unexpected scene. So what can you tell us about that? In reality, if this had happened, probably she would have run, kept running to the emergency room. If, if this really happened to me, I would think, oh, my. But she's, like I said, she's fragmented. She's exhausted. She's been working really hard. So she goes out of the theater to go to the bathroom and finds herself not where she was. She basically, where she finds herself is, and she, she has no idea at the time, she thinks she's hallucinating. Uh, she's in a 1598 uh, theater uh, at the, a production of The Merchant of Venice, which she has also just been watching, as you said, in, in a horrible rendition of it. But here she is. And Shylock, the character, is up doing uh, one of his scenes. And she thinks, And everything is assaulting her. All her senses are on fire. You know, it smells different. It looks different. The people are dressed differently. You know, so she she's like, I gotta get out of here. So she she turns around and she leaves and she she's back. So she rationalizes this uh, experience and this she just thinks, okay. I have got to change my life. I cannot keep going down this path. I've got to stop teaching Shakespeare. I've got to, you know, just knock it off, relax. And, and then she, she goes back um, into the, the, her time uh, production of the, of the play. Uh, and, and that's just a little hint of what's going to happen. <laughs> right, exactly. And actually her reaction is understandable because the only other real alternative is to check yourself in. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, okay, I have lost it. I truly, you know, I, I, I wanted, you know, really I kept worrying about this. I kept thinking, you know, what happens when people have, I know people have little breaks and they, they but I tried to keep her very, present so as we went through this quote-unquote delusion we wouldn't think she needed to run to the hospital <laughs> we wanted to believe her and she wants you know because we want to hang on to that experience but it, so it was a really I was very concerned about her mental state but also presenting it as 100% real no no I actually I completely accepted her reaction because as I said you know I think most people would do like that couldn't have happened right <laughs> That, yeah. that would be crazy. So that couldn't have happened. <laughs> and of course, she does hit the wine bottle later, which is the other thing that many yeah. people would do. Yeah, like time to drink. Right. So she gets back from her first encounter with the past, which she doesn't really recognize as an encounter with the past. Um, but then later this evening, she has an even more disturbing experience, and things start to go south fast. So 
could you tell us what happens to her and also a little bit more about her as a person? I mean, you mentioned that she has some issues in her past uh, that she takes with her back into the 16th century. She, so what happens is she, um, despite her resolution to change her entire life, she goes home and she starts grading papers. And um, she, she knows she hasn't been teaching that well. She, this this semester she's just she's been just not with it and not on her game and she's drinking that wine to make her forget her weird experience and she finds herself in a cupboard in somewhere and there's a terrible fight occurring in in sort of Elizabethan English um, with a lot of uh, Shakespeare Shakespearean Elizabethan insults being flung at somebody. And she is um, locked in the cupboard and she, she's just desperate to get out. And finally, after much, much convincing of the person on the other side of, of the cupboard, you know, just promising that she will not attack him because the other, the person on the other side of the cupboard is Shakespeare. And he, he, he has been, as we know, from what I've told you, he has been afflicted with Jessica's now for months and he knows who she is. She doesn't know. He knows she's a Jessica. It's like, oh, here we go. She's going to disappear. Well, she gets out and not that she becomes beside herself soon, but she's like, who are you? And she looks and she goes, maybe that's Shakespeare. And then she just realizes she thinks, oh, I'm going here. It comes again. I'm having another delusion. And they end up having this one of some of my favorite parts of this book are when she and he are just grappling with her appearance in his room. And she's, she's acting like she won't later because she thinks she's having a dream or she's insane or she's on drugs. She doesn't know what has happened to her. So she's acting out. She's being saucy and snappy and, um, and he's just looking at her like, oh, will you go away? Will you go away? Will you go away? If you just could go away, then the next one can come and I can get on with my life. So um, he's exhausted by this and she's thinking this is crazy. Um, and I, who she is as a person when she pops into that room in terms of her past, she, she had an ill-fated love affair with a man during her graduate years who was married and she feels terrible about this, but she got caught up in his promises of, Oh, don't, you know, I'm so really unhappy in my marriage and I will eventually, I will, I will leave her. And then he keeps having children with his wife and they, then they move to the suburbs (laughs) and everything, you know, so she realizes that she's just been an idiot and it was wrong. So uh, t- we tuck that information away. We also find out that her mother and her father had sort of a troubling relationship, and she watched that divorce play out also. So we tuck that information away about her her knowledge of solid relationships is pretty slim. We do find out that she has a very strong connection with her sister. And so she has some strength of relationship there with her sister and her niece. 
So she's not alone in the world emotionally, but there's not really enough for her um, to sort of push herself through the, 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 her built-up issues from the past. And one of the things that, you know, basically when you time travel, when you do time travel, <laughs> you know, you hopefully, will, when you're able to do your time traveling, you know, time traveling would be really safe except if you land during a plague year um, and compared to travel now. Uh, she, you know, you, she has to grow and Shakespeare's. He's going to have to grow. They're both going to have to grow. She can't just go and impart all her wisdom from from the future. You know, she has to figure some stuff out. And I think that's, that's, those are her issues that she's bringing with her. That's a great summary. So she, not surprisingly, has a rather hard time accepting that this is, in fact, Tudor England. And, there, and she really is talking to William Shakespeare, who at the point is this point is still a young man so he's he looks like the pictures but he doesn't look like the you know the familiar balding pates um in fact he's quite sexy uh not too strong a point on it um there are some really funny chapters in addition to their dialogue which had me laughing and turning pages um there are these hilarious chapters where she starts to come to grips with the past you know uh as she puts it the goddamn rats and no toothpaste or plague syphilis typhus tuberculosis smallpox malaria and dysentery (laughs) so tell us a bit about her first days in 16th century london and how she finally manages to make some kind of peace with her new circumstances i feel like that what really helped her more than anything was water and soap you know i I, once she got once she was able to order up some hot water and buy some decent soap, I feel like she was able to get a grip on herself. But before that, first of all, she's in denial. That first night, they're drinking some really horrible moonshiny kind of something. They're drinking. They're chatting. She's sparring with him. She's breaking all the rules she knows about, like, interacting with a with a culture, you know, she uses start the Star Trek metaphor a lot. You know, the prime directive where you're, you meet a new culture, you don't break their culture. She's like, ah, this is ridiculous. So she's telling him all sorts of things he shouldn't know about wars and, ta- and you know, what his own work she's just spewing. And then when she wakes up and she's still there and he's still there and she realizes she's not having a delusion or if she is, it's a really, really good one. And it's totally real. She starts to apply her future knowledge in sort of devastating ways that she understands she has to track. Is it a plague year? Um, what it, you know, what is, a, what's going to happen to her in this very room? So she, begin cleaning is her sort of way of dealing with it. She has, she gets the room clean. She gets them clean. She, she puts him on a hygiene routine (laughs) and her, yeah, it's like, you're going to brush your teeth and you're going to wash and, you know, because and she, and somehow Shakespeare complies with her, her demands and he gets a little irritated by her. She, she makes him get a cat eventually to, to, for the for the mice and the rats and she's also the good news is she has information about when things are going to go bad in terms of 
you know, pestilence and, and war and, uh, you know, political trouble. So I think she takes that and cleanliness and says, okay. Oh, and, and, you know, she, she later figures out what she can do in the time, but she goes forward with those things thinking, okay, I'm going to be here and I have to live smart while I, while I'm here. Yeah, I mean, to loop, look back to where we were talking of what we were talking about before with Mrs. Bennett, you know, it's fine to think about how much fun it would be to go back to the past and go to, I don't know, Versailles or something, although I think it was probably yeah. pretty stinky based on the novel. Yeah, I would recently. say the swamp there, right? Right. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> no running water. <laughs> No running water. <laughs> no vacuum cleaners, you know. Um, it's the, the, the thought of actually living under those conditions uh, where, you know, just to get a bath, somebody has to haul buckets of water up three flights of stairs. Um, and then it's maybe, if you're lucky, it's four inches you know, for you to sit in. It's like, <laughs> no. And medicine, my God, medicine, if anything goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I researched a lot. I remember reading about buildings and where the privies were in the, in the house and how the rooms were uh, priced uh, accordingly based on their location. It, the, it, the closer to the privy, the cheaper the room and how it was built. And I, I just kept thinking, oh, and then, the, you know, just the streets and the sewage. And, and it would be really, really rough to, to go back. Yeah, no pa- yeah, no paved streets. I mean, do you, if no, you've got nothing. cobblestones, but mostly it's mud. Mud, lots of mud. And, you know, I really appreciate a good historical movie where everything is dirty because, you know, uh, when my husband and I were watching something recently, I can't, it was, oh, it was For All Mankind. It's a show about um, space travel uh, on an alternate timeline, but it starts in the 50s and 60s. Every single beautiful car in that show looked like the collector, you know, there were no beaters. There were were no dents. You know, everything was just the most gorgeous car from, from that time. And you think this is, you know, we love to... Again, we love to romanticize the past. Right. It's nostalgia. It is. I mean, we, I remember uh, my husband and I love Phantom Thread, the Daniel Day-Lewis movie. Um, Oh, yeah. But every time I watch it, I'm like, London was blown up (laughs) four years before this movie starts. (laughs) And there isn't a sign of it. (laughs) There is not a sign of, of uh, of the bombings. It's just, but anyway, let's move on. So let's talk about Shakespeare himself. I mean, this is 1598 when she lands, and he's not actually in a very good place in his career right now. So what's going on with him? Well, there's a couple things. One is the plague in various years previous and then later, it shuts down the theaters. So there, there you know, it, it's very much, you know, I didn't, I wrote this, most of it before the pandemic, right? But now everyone can relate to this. Look what's happened to our arts community in New York. The, the same thing. So we have a thriving Broadway um, culture and uh, a whole economy based on the theater. It shuts down. So now we all know what that feels like and we know what it's like. So that was happening 
to in in that era the plague would roll through everything would get shut down so there was that the other thing is patronage so we didn't have like a national endowment for the arts uh, there wasn't that you you had to you had a theater that could make money sell tickets to, to people but you also had to have typically a patron um, a rich uh, noble person which Shakespeare does have that comes at quite a cost really uh, to help support you in your art to help support the theater you had to have also the pleasure of the royalty or the queen to help the theater stay afloat so at this time he's sort of in between he's lurching around in this time that wasn't um, his most lucrative things are also the globe he was in transition between two theaters the theater capital T capital theater was where he did his work but they were very shortly after at this time moving on into the globe theater the first one so you know we have he's in he's in transition uh, and he is also miserable in my version and maybe in real life we don't know that he you know he had a wife he had two children two living children. He also wrote love poems to a man and a woman. We know that in the son the sonnets are to um, a mysterious man, WH, or and to a quote unquote dark lady. And you his his personal life was a bit um, in flux. At least in my version, for sure, in his real life, perhaps. You know, we again, we don't have a lot of historical record, but all the scholars before me have done all the good hard work of trying to figure out who Shakespeare was in love with. So I, I pulled that thread a bit more because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun one. <laughs> It is a fun one, and it's an, it's also a way of getting at a very stark contrast, I mean, not just between us and 1596, but also between us and 1996, which is the possibility, you know, what it would be like for Shakespeare if he was, in fact, in love with men. So do tell us a little bit about uh, Lord Pembroke, uh, who is his patron, um, and Lord Pembroke's niece, uh, Lady Mary Sidney. Those are both historical characters, even though they're not, you know, they're, they're used differently in your book. Right, and I feel badly um, uh, if they if they're in another parallel universe looking at this, thinking, "What did she do?" So, W. H. Uh, William, um, you know, William uh, Pembroke. There is an idea that this fellow was the man that uh, Shakespeare was writing to. Now, in one movie version that I wrote. Lady Mary Sidney was older, and she she was the dark lady. So it, she she has figured in Shakespeare's scholarship. She was Lord Pembroke's um, niece, uh, and she in real life. And I keep almost forgetting her real life because I like the future that I created for her much much better than what happened to her. She married um, Lord Roth and went on to have really a very um, sad marriage and, and life 
uh, and her, she had sort of this relationship, not sexual, maybe sexual with her, with her cousin. I, I mean, um, Lord Pembroke, I don't really, you know, it's unclear, but I, I found, and, but she was also a writer and she was a writer of some note, especially for a woman of her time. And I tried to read some of her work and it is just a little bit too much for me, but she actually, you know, she was published and she had an amazing imagination and I thought, what, how old is she? So I, I worked, I worked this out so that Jessica could meet her in, in this. And she, and she might be in danger. You know, Jessica's saying, uh, thinking, oh, I know what happens to her. I know this. I know this writer. I rem- what she is in danger somehow. This Pembroke guy is bad news. And look what he's doing, by the way, to Will. Look how, so William Shakespeare actually, in real life, was contracted by William Pembroke's um, mother to write sonnet uh, to him to help, to help him no, just not pick to this woman that he did marry. <laughs> he helped him write love sonnets. And that didn't go well because William Pembroke, to to get at his, and this is in the real world, not in my story, in the real world married a, a, we call a little person in his time and married her to get back at his mother who was overbearing and wanted him to marry who he wanted to marry. She wanted him to marry. And so it's all just like a soap opera. It, it, I, I kept reading this. I'm like, I'm going to fix this. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to let Lady Mary Sidney not marry her terrible husband, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to deal with his Lord Pembroke and put him in his place. I'm going to deal with all of this. And it was really fun, but I, and especially for anyone who's thinking I'm, you know, I'm, I'm holding on to history. I let it go and changed history because of the alternate timeline. Good for you. So what would you like people to take away from the plays, the thing? The people before us, you know, I, I was, you know, all these writers that we read as English majors, you know, Jane Austen or, you know, I keep going back to Jane Austen, but just we go to Shakespeare and we look that even though we think we know more and can do better, they were grappling with situations that still affect us today and that we still need to pay attention to. And, you know, we can't really redo the past, but we could certainly make, we can do some work now in, in the present. And so take, take a few notes and, and maybe work on things. <laughs> Good idea. So how about yourself? Um, this book has just come out, um, but as we all know, it takes a little while to get things published. Are you working on something new? I am. Thanks for asking. I, um, I, sort of in the time I was working on the place of thing, I was also writing a historical novel based on my family. One part of it, we they came over just about this time to the uh, to the New World in uh, fifteen, no sixteen fifteen, and so I ha- I have all the records. My my great grandmother was a DAR member and I, I just, I, I just did this whole novel and it really never ever worked no matter what I did. 
And I finally gave it a very quick memorial with a candle and put it away and started writing a very smaller story, a much smaller story, using some threads from that. And I just finished the draft a couple of weeks ago. And so it's historical in that part of it's set just post-World War II. And, and then it moves up, in, up into, I, I ended it just after the, this, pan, this pandemic ends, by the way. I just thought I'd let you know. I, and I did it in this timeline. <laughs> I, I ended it for us. It's all going to end up okay. Uh, so, and I don't know, you know, I think this one works. I've now got to go through the whole process of getting, you know, my beta readers to read it and, you know, do the revising. But um, we'll see. We'll see. Who knows? It's all a mystery. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Yeah, pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Jessica Barksdale in Klan about the plays The Thing. Find out more about her at www.jessicabarksdaleinklan.com. That's all one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.